Hi there, Rachel here. If you're listening to this episode in May of 2024, I have some big news. After selling out during the holiday season, my Flex of Gold journal is available for pre-order right now and will be shipping to your home by the end of June. To celebrate, we're running an amazing pre-order sale for Mother's Day. Purchase the journal before May 13th and you'll get $10 off every journal. This is our best price of the year, even better than Black Friday, so it's the perfect time to stock up for gifts for family and friends. This three-year journal helps mothers to notice, savor, and write down the fleeting golden moments that they experience with their children each day. So go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to reserve your copy, and you'll also see our brand new cover colors, as well as our new cover option, which is a wipeable vegan leather. So again, go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to pre-order your journal, and from now until Mother's Day 2024, they'll be marked down by $10 each. I can't wait for you to experience the magic of this beautiful gratitude journal for mothers. You're listening to 3 and 30 Takeaways for Moms, episode 135, How Everyday Moms Can Support Refugee Families. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. Before we jump into today's episode, I just want to say thank you for pressing play. (laughs) I know we all have a lot going on in our minds right now and a lot of big concerns for our world. We're in the midst of a global pandemic and a national reckoning over centuries of racism and injustice. It's a lot and it's heavy. Today we're talking about refugees because this past Saturday, June 20th, was World Refugee Day, a day when we commemorate the strength, courage, and perseverance of millions of refugees around the world. To me, the stories of refugees truly embody the resilience of the human spirit. They remind me that I'm capable of hard things and that love and family and community are worth fighting for. So I hope that this episode will inspire you during this uncertain time and also remind you that as we work to improve this world, we don't have to do everything all at once. We don't have to do huge things either. As you listen, you might just get one tiny idea of how you can be a better neighbor and community member, or even just one tiny bit of knowledge that will help you to better understand the issues that you hear about on the news about refugees and immigration. Any effort you make to expand your worldview and become more aware of your neighbors matters. By way of background on this episode, I recorded it a couple of months ago with my dear friend of over 15 years, Nelda Alt-Dislin. She has extensive experience working with refugee communities, first at the Bowling Green International Center, a small resettlement center in Kentucky originally founded in the 1990s to serve the Bosnian refugee community. And now she works as a founding member of the Cash Refugee and Immigrant Connection, or CRIC as they call it, in Logan, Utah. Nelda and I recorded this episode farther in advance than I usually record because she was pregnant with twins and we didn't know when those little bundles would arrive. (laughs) I'm happy to announce that they have since arrived safe and healthy, two baby girls, and I'm thrilled for my dear friend who's now a new mama on top of all of the other many hats that she wears. As you listen to our conversation today, I hope that you'll think about how the three takeaways that Nelda shares can be applied to helping any group of people in your community that you're passionate about helping, whether that be black communities who are grieving and demanding reform right now, or refugee communities, which Nelda and I will focus on in this episode, 
or also LGBTQ plus communities because June is also Pride Month in the United States. Individuals matter. These causes and conversations matter. And I'm grateful to be part of a community of podcast listeners who deeply believes that. So thank you for pushing play today. And don't forget that this month of episodes is brought to us by Bravery Magazine, which is an organization that also deeply cares about supporting vulnerable communities and educating children to be compassionate and courageous world changers. I love this beautiful quarterly magazine for children ages 5 through 12, and their newest issue focuses specifically on issues facing refugees as it spotlights Olympic swimmer and Syrian refugee Yusra Mardini. At the age of only 15, while fleeing war-torn Syria, Yusra was on a small boat in the middle of the Aegean Sea when it started to sink with 24 refugees on board. Yusra, who was a really strong swimmer, her older sister and two others jumped into the water and started pulling the boat. They swam for three and a half hours and everyone in the boat survived because of their courage and selflessness. These are the types of true stories that are featured in each issue of Bravery Magazine, and I truly believe that this is a resource that every family should have in their home because kids need to know these stories. I also think that a subscription to Bravery would be a great gift idea for kids' birthdays. Maybe it's something that you could send to grandma and encourage her to get for the kids, and you can use the code 3 and 30 for 10% off at checkout. I am so grateful and honored to partner with Bravery this month and to bring you this episode about working with refugees in connection with their most recent issue. And now onto the show. Again, this is How the Everyday Mom Can Help Refugee Families. Today I'm interviewing one of the best humans on the planet, my dear friend Nelda Alt Dislin. We met during college through an international volunteer program where we spent a summer in El Salvador volunteering in orphanages and teaching English classes. It was there that we started calling each other hermana, which means sister in Spanish. It's now been 15 years since we were walking those dusty roads of rural El Salvador together, but I've continued to watch with amazement as Nelda has used her quiet but powerful influence to invest in people and communities everywhere she goes. She is steady, compassionate, wise, and good to her core. So with no further ado, I'd like to welcome my dear friend Nelda to 3 and 30. Welcome, Hermana. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here talking with you. And we've talked about doing this episode for a long time, like probably a year. I've said, I want to have you come on and talk about working with refugee communities. But when I heard that this month's sponsor, which is Bravery Magazine, their focus for their May issue is around Yusra Mardini, who is a refugee from Syria, I knew it was the right time to finally have you on the show. And I'm so glad you agreed, even though you are super pregnant right now. (laughs) (laughs) It was my pleasure. And I think this is a really great opportunity. I know that there's lots of concerns that people have just in the world right now, but refugees and other um, other types of immigration always come up in the news. And I, th- I think people have lots of questions all the time. Yeah. So for the everyday mom who is listening, how would she go about, and that this is what our takeaways are going to be about, based on your work with Crick and these different communities that you've gotten to know well over the past 10 years plus, how would an everyday mom start to work with refugee communities? Yeah. And I love that you're using communities plural. Uh, I think that's a really important thing. And that's where I always try to start off because there's there's no way that you can just say all refugees from around the world are one community. It's definitely 
lots mm. of different groups of people who have lots of different experiences. Um, not every city in in the U.S. is a resettlement city. And so that means not every city gets people sent to them by the United Nations Refugee Program. Mm. Um, so the city that I live in is an example of that. The closest city uh, to where I live that receives refugees like straight from a refugee camp or straight from you know, that kind of processing is Salt Lake City. Mm. Um, after that, probably the next closest one is Denver. And so it's these larger cities around the U.S. that will receive refugees straight off an airplane. Mm. And um, and as you can imagine, the people who arrive in um, a resettlement city have different kinds of you know things that they need to learn because they just came from maybe living for a generation or two in a refugee camp, you know, in a bamboo hut wow. with hundreds of thousands of other people. Mm. Or they may have just recently fled their home. I know in the Bravery magazine issue, the story of Yusra, who I, I really hope that people read that story because it's a really great example of just the range of refugee experience. Mm. You know, she, she left her home and traveled, you know, by boat, by foot to get to Europe. And so her background as a refugee is very different than some of the people that I've worked with. So there's this large variation. There are some people who have left their home very long ago and some people who have. Mm. And so to account for like that variation, that's I think the where a regular old person just needs to start by realizing that not every refugee story is the same. Mm. And so the way that I put it, I, I like to say um, it's it's best to start off being very creative about your approach to how you want to learn and also to be humble about how you're starting to, starting out your learning. In social justice work, we use the term cultural humility, which you know has kind of really, at a really basic level, knowing that your culture that you come from is one of many and that there are so many different experiences out there. And just to being open to all the different kinds of the things that people have experienced and that, that inform what they do. Yeah. And not just assuming that everyone who's a refugee has the same experience or the same needs, not assuming that they're all uneducated or whatever. You know, you have people coming here who were doctors and professors in their home country that have totally different needs than people coming who had a different life experience exactly. before they came here. Yes, yes. So my one of my first approaches I love is um, just finding out what you can about the people who live around you. And if you aren't in a resettlement city, perhaps there are other immigrant groups or other groups, other minority groups that you would like to learn about. And they don't necessarily need to be refugees, but it's the same learning process, I feel like. And so... And and before you go any further, Nelda, can you just define what is a refugee? Oh, yes. Yeah. There, there is a very um, specific legal definition of a refugee. And that uh -huh. is something that that word gets used in lots of different contexts. But in the context of resettlement, the United Nations has deemed a particular type of person situation as a refugee situation. So I'll, I'll read it and then we can talk about it. But so... To the United Nations, a refugee is a person who is outside his or her country of nationality who is unable or unwilling to return because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinions. And so you've got those five protected classes, I guess we'd say, race, religion, nationality, 
membership in a social group that has been deemed protected or their political opinions. And so if someone is fleeing their homeland and going to another place and plans to apply for refugee status, they have to be able to prove that they cannot return based on one of those five things and mm. only those five. Wow. And you can think of probably a lot of different situations where that doesn't have to deal with race or religion, but that you can't go home because you appear you fear for your life, but those wouldn't count for your mm. um, refugee application. Interesting. So one example is, is gender is not a protected class in this definition. And so I can think of, of examples that I've heard where people like, I cannot go home because I'm a woman. I fear for my life in this like, domestic violence, violence situation, those kinds of things. And that would not be enough to be deemed a refugee. Interesting. So you're saying when people are deemed refugees and they leave their country or the United Nations helps them to leave their country or the camp where they've been, sometimes for generations, like you said, or for a very long time, then they have resettlement cities that are big cities. But then do the people themselves choose, like the Burmese community in, in Logan, nobody sent them to Logan. Like they decided to go there themselves? Correct. Okay. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I've heard different stories. I think I think it must depend on which program they come through. I Because I hear of people who they always say, oh, I was in the refugee camp in Thailand. And they asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, oh, I want to go to the U.S. But other people have said, oh, I didn't have any choice. I just They just told me one day, you're going to the U.S., you're going to Utah. Interesting. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly um, how that's decided. Mm -hmm. the, the U.S. will look at what communities have infrastructure that's willing to accept refugees and that um, is able as far as like being able to provide jobs. Is there affordable housing? Those kinds of things. So, so that's why not every city is a, mm. is a resettlement city. Yeah. So it sounds like if you're not in a big city, you're probably not in a resettlement city. But if you're not sure if there are refugees even living in your community, like I'm not sure, where would you even start to find that out? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would start out by looking at, you know, learning about different refugee resettlement agencies. There are only a, a handful in the U.S. Um, so in Utah, we have the International Rescue Committee, which I think a lot of people have heard of, or the IRC. Uh, the other one we have is the Catholic Community Services, or CCS. But there's also um, one that's called Church World Service. There are other, these others. I think that there are eight or nine in total in the U.S. So I feel like going to one of their websites and seeing, okay, where is your closest resettlement city? And then maybe you reach out to the organization and say, hey, I live this far away from this resettlement city. Are there people that move here. We, we call them secondary migrants, where as soon as you land in the U.S. as a refugee in your resettlement city, you are free to go wherever you would like. If, so say you didn't get a choice and they sent you to Utah and you show up in January and it's very cold and you say, I don't know anyone here. It's very cold. And my uncle lives in Miami. I'm going to go move to live with him. You're mm -hmm. welcome to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so then at that point, though, the problem is you leave behind uh, your the caseworker that was that was assigned to help your family. You leave behind perhaps a community of translators that was really ready to get you settled. It's fine that you're with your family, but there's also some resources that you may miss out on. And that's the, the work that we do here in Logan. Um, mm. So we're 90 miles north of Salt Lake City. And even if you were resettled to Salt Lake only 90 miles away, your caseworker can't reach up to where you're living now to continue working with you. 
So you lose access to those resources if you choose. Okay. So then your organization fills in the gap there. Like they don't have a caseworker anymore that's provided to them. Your nonprofit helps with those things. Yes. And so if you were living here and you didn't know about, about Crick and you found maybe the, the IRC's website and said, oh, okay, well, Salt Lake City, and then you maybe call them and then they'll say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we get people who moved south to Provo or north to Logan. Go, oh, that's where I live. So I think that that's probably a good place to start. Um, you could also try calling your local schools. Sometimes the schools will keep track of their refugee students, sometimes not. Um, it kind of just depends on their, their capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also take a look at the different employment opportunities there are in your community. Maybe there's a meatpacking plant nearby. Maybe there's some kind of manufacturing job nearby or agricultural work. Then those are kinds of industries that people will move to after they've been resettled because you know the wages are higher than maybe working in an urban hotel or something like that, where that, that's probably the, one of the first jobs they'll get. Okay. So interesting. So our first takeaway is be creative and humble when learning about refugee communities. So you're not assuming that all refugee communities are the same. You get creative about how you find out about the people in your community. Do you have an example of how to be humble when you're learning about refugee communities? Yes. This is one of my favorite strategies, I feel like, is learning a little bit of language. And I I know that language learning is hard and maybe people have like really bad experiences trying to learn, you know, Spanish in school or something like that. But if you are humble about your approach and realize that the community members that you potentially want to work with are in the same boat and perhaps have a lot of anxiety about trying to communicate in English, then I feel like that that puts you in a good space to be a better community member to them. But what I really love about trying to learn a few words in Burmese or Karen or Tigrinya is that when you try it out, it kind of, it, it just kind of breaks the, the ice. And mm. you say, oh, like you say good morning in their language. And they just smile like, wait, how do you know that? Do you speak my language? And then you're like, no, that's all I know. Yeah. Well, and also you probably maybe say it wrong, but they know uh-huh. what you're, they know what you're trying to say. <laughs> exactly. And they smile because it's funny how you said it, uh-huh. but it's also like really a gesture of welcoming that you would learn that in their language. It's a gesture of friendship. Exactly. And and it's not that uh, people will say, well, you know, you don't want to be too accommodating because they need to learn English. Like, yes. But before someone feels comfortable enough, and, and you know this from, you know, from your work in teaching, you have to create this environment where people feel like they can learn and they can make mistakes and it's okay because they're this place where they can learn. Mm-hmm. And that's what that gesture does. It's like, you know, it's okay. I sound silly and it doesn't matter what you sound like. And we're going to work on this together. Um, That's so great. I feel like there is vulnerability in putting yourself in a position where you don't know how to do something perfectly. Like even approaching somebody who's from a different country who may not speak your language, you know, it feels vulnerable to put yourself out there and befriend somebody. But think about the vulnerability that they're living with every single day, being in a country where they don't speak everyone's language. And so if you can overcome that fear, and I'm speaking to myself too, <laughs> of not maybe being able to do it perfectly, of maybe it's going to be a little awkward, that eventually you can really build a bridge with that person. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then what is your second takeaway? Um, so related to what we were talking about before, and I, I didn't really know how to splice these apart, but this is another angle. So before you assume 
the kind of help that somebody needs, ask them what help they, what it is that they do need. Maybe you haven't been able to find a lot of examples of different refugee experiences and how the, those are, you know, it, that informs the things that people are learning, the things that people need. But directly asking either you know, a family or an individual that you are working with or an organization that you that you trust exactly what it is that they need, because it might not be what you thought. So we hear refugee, we think, oh, they must need food and clothing. Some of them do. But I think of my friend Hassan, who has a, a master's degree in bioengineering in Sudan is where he's from. And you know what he needs? He doesn't need more clothes. Like, you know, he's got his same set of clothes that I recognize him in. You know, I see whenever I see him, he's wearing the same clothes. It doesn't matter. What he really needs is someone to help him go through his transcript from Sudan to see what translates over to a degree that he could have in the U.S. And so if people didn't ask him what he needed, mm -hmm. then he might just get a bunch of shirts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is the work it's easy to gather up shirts to give. It's harder to sit with somebody who doesn't speak your language and help them figure out their transcript. That's something that I've learned from you is that you've told me what a lot of times what people need most or what organizations need most is time. Yeah. And people who are willing to go and sit with somebody for an hour and make a phone call for them to the utilities company because they don't, they can't navigate that conversation because uh, they don't have the language skills. And so that is long, hard work. I mean, I can just imagine the hours that you have spent sitting with people, filling out applications, making phone calls. But it's also like it's the work of humanity to help people get these basic needs met and to take the time to sit with someone for an hour and help them with something yeah. like that. And I think that it's you know not only taking care of the immediate need, but as you do it, you're also teaching them so that eventually maybe, or maybe their child is watching with you, or maybe they're, I mean, their mm -hmm. teenager is helping with the translation. Like th the learning is happening. It's not that you've done it for them. Yes. Done it all for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things is when people come back to me and say, Hey, Nelda, remember when you told me what to say at the driver's license division? Well, I did that. And then I took my friend to help her do it. And we got it all done. And I was like, Oh, I had no idea that you mm -hmm. um, had gone and done it for your friend, but that's, that's what you needed to do good job. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it really does take just one-on-one. -on -one. I was even thinking, you know, my kids are out of school now. And actually when this episode airs, it will be summer by then, but they're in a dual immersion school mm -hmm. and there's only so much that I can do to help them with that. And so Sally's kindergarten teacher offered to do a one-on-one -on -one with Sally and just watching her talk to Sally over Zoom this morning, it meant so much to me that she would take that time to just work with her one-on-one -on -one. and the progress that Sally made in that 20 minutes was so much because she had one-on-one -on -one attention. And so if we can really sit down with somebody and give them that one-on-one -on -one time and walk them through it, they're often going to get so much more than if they're like looking online and trying to figure it out on their own to have that personalized attention from someone. Yes. Yeah. And another thing that you've taught me too, is to consider that when you're giving donations of clothing or different items like that, a lot of times people's religion might dictate the type of clothing or their culture may dictate. And so you can't always just assume that what works for you works for somebody else. And in a way, it, it can almost become a burden to an organization if you dump a whole bunch of clothes on them that they can't use because it doesn't match with their refugee community's culture or religion. 
so that's something great that I've learned from you about asking, asking organizations what they need before just assuming. Aside from cultural differences, just physical size, um, a community can make a difference on, you know, are those five bags of clothing donations going to sit in the corner of the office until we can take them to the mm-hmm. thrift store or, uh, you know, are like carefully chosen donations um, with a mind for who they're going to, um, will those go you know, pretty immediately because we can find exactly who needs them. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great example. Okay. And then what is your third takeaway? Yeah. My third one is kind of helping you decide what organization you should put your energy toward. Or, you know, if you find yourself like, oh, I finally do have some time to dedicate. How do I decide who to Mm. give it to? Um, I don't know any refugees. I don't have any neighbors or anyone at my kid's school. I just need to go through an organization and how to decide who to join up with. And so um, I would suggest looking toward organizations and efforts that recognize the assets that refugees bring with them instead of focusing on the deficits. You know, no one wants to be identified by just their shortcomings or their needs or to be labeled. Or the struggle that they're in at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that those, those things come with the word refugee where, you know, you hear that in the news and you automatically think of these connotations of like, need and deficit and they have nothing and they you know they don't Mm -hmm. they're all just like a big like a big black hole of needs which is not the case and would you want someone to look at you like that and so I think that a good organization that recognizes the you know the humanity but also the assets of the people that that they are working with is the one that you want to find you know, it's it's the organization that on their messaging, mm. on their posters, on their social media channels, they are emphasizing what are refugee families doing? What are they achieving? What are they, you know, how are they adapting their skills and their experiences to the place that they are now, even though it's completely, a, like almost a completely different planet for them. Look for those kinds of messages and and follow those organizations. Mm. Right. Versus messaging that can sort of give the implication of like, we're the saviors for these poor people that need us, you know. Can you give an example of maybe good messaging versus bad messaging? Just can you make that a little bit more concrete for us? So if we see an example of it, we can be like, oh, maybe not the best organization to invest in versus yes, that's the type of organization I want to work with. Yeah, I can think of some good examples, especially when it comes to food. Um, And that's one of the things that that is so much fun when you start getting to know people from different refugee communities is that they are often very willing and enthusiastic to share with you their food. And so I know that in Salt Lake and in other uh, cities, there are efforts to help different refugees start their own catering businesses or food truck businesses. And so a lot of the feeds that I see uh, over social media or maybe in email newsletters are like this woman, she has been cooking for this many years. She used to have a stand, you know, in a city in, in Sudan and she would sell this food every day. And when she came to Salt Lake, she couldn't find this particular ingredient, but with help from whoever, a volunteer or someone, she's now able to source those ingredients and keep on doing what she loves to do while supporting her family. And so it's you know, these examples of, okay, we've got the skill around food that everybody loves and here's how it looks right now. I think like an example of a poor message is 
I'm thinking of things like commercials of, you know, oh, donate to this cause and all they have are emaciated children or disease and flies and, you know, Mm. not having clean water and those kinds of things. Like those organizations do work, but it's the imagery just reinforces what so um, stereotypes yeah exactly and and what mm. people don't want to be identified as i think yes. you're putting yourself in in the shoes yes you have some needs but is that all that there is to mm. you probably not yes and you told me about an example of a newspaper reporter who said something to you that was kind of well can you just tell that story Yeah. So because our organization, because Crick has such a small office and one and a half staff members, we don't have a lot of capacity to deal with physical donations. So like in-kind donations of clothing and furniture and that kind of stuff, we just don't have room for it. But one of the things that we do make room for are school supplies, because we feel like if we're able to outfit school kids with the materials they need, even though we know that school teachers and schools provide a lot of materials for them, we would still love for every kid to have like a calculator of their own at, you know, that they can have at home or a set of colored pencils they can have at home. And especially in times like these, mm-hmm. you know, where you do, don't have the the classroom supply closet. And so, so we, we do dedicate space and time for a school supply drive every year. And mm. we were advertising it because we wanted more donors and a, a local news outlet contacted us and said, okay, well, tell us about your drive. What are you doing it for? And one of the last questions was, are these families grateful for what you do for them? And we all kind of, it was me and and a couple of other board members. And we're like, what does that mean? Like, well, who wouldn't be? And what kind of question is that? But kind of going back as we examined, because at the time we weren't prepared for a question that, that seemed to come out of this place of, well, of, of course, this, these families are so needy. And you're, we as a community are supplying that need. What are we getting out of it? And like, I hope they're grateful. Yeah. And, um, and so since then we've thought about it and have tried to, you know, turn questions like that into more informed, more community member based, I guess, a way of thinking. We're like, we're all in this together. You know, some, the, the child that's, that's successful at school benefits all of the communities, you know, and not just their family. So anyway, that's, that was the kind of message we were worried that that mm. what would come out of an article like that, mm. that was based only, only coming from this perspective of, well, look at these poor people that you all are helping. Yeah. And so if someone were to ask you that question now, how would you respond to it? How would you rephrase that question or how would you answer it in a way that kind of educates softly? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I would, I would think I would, I would kind of turn it and just say, we as an organization are grateful for these families who have sacrificed so much to stay together, to get through the whole entire refugee resettlement process, and now to go through the process of learning to be in this new place. We're grateful for them and for the efforts that they they expend every day just to feel at home. And this is the smallest thing that we could do for you know these community members who are giving everything that they can to start over. And so, yeah, I think that I would probably rephrase it and turn it back around to like Mm. emphasizing the efforts and the assets that the community members bring to our community 
and we just have this like ancillary like we're on the side watching this this bigger process mm, yes and I feel like this is I'm putting you on the spot here I didn't tell you to think of something in advance but I'm wondering if you could share with us like a moment or a person that has taught you and brought so much or community that has informed you in a way that has deeply positively impacted your life that's made this work worth it the everyday mom is listening, thinking like, I have a tremendous amount of stuff to do in my life. Like, why would I prioritize this work mm -hmm. with refugee communities? Could you have a moment that kind of captures that? Um, yeah, I'm sure I have lots. You know, I think one of the ones that I love thinking about, one of the things that our organization facilitates, you know, we don't own this land, but we, we facilitate a, a community garden. And I love gardening. Like that's one of those things that we didn't do it when I was a small child. But as we, as I got older, we had a big backyard and a garden that was irrigated with irrigation water that comes through the ditches. It's something out in the West um, that people will be familiar with. <laughs> and so like, I have these very fond memories of just like being in the mud and watching stuff grow and pulling weeds with my family and just enjoying this time outside because, you know, like summertime in Cache Valley is just heavenly. And so in this community garden, one of the very first years that we started it up, there was one woman who, she's originally from Burma, had fled to Thailand when she was, uh, I think, a young teenager, um, had grown up in the camp, married, had children and while, while in the camp, and then was resettled um, with her family to Salt Lake when her youngest was probably, I don't know, one or two years old. And so they were very used to, you know, in the camp, they had their own little garden plot and very used to growing their own greens and their own food. That was something that, you know, it was something that they owned because in a refugee camp, you are given donations of food. Like here's your weekly, monthly, whatever allotment of rice and clothes. And you just showed up and you were given stuff and then you went back. But you, you could be responsible mm -hmm. for your family if you had this little garden. So when we opened up this garden, we were, you know, out there. Uh, I was probably... I don't know what I was doing out there. She was weeding and we had the irrigation water on. So she's, you know, rolled up her pant legs and we kind of up to her shins in water and mud. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is like my childhood of, of being out in the irrigation water. And I remember she, she stood up and it was this, you know, kind of early summer morning. And um, she's like, you know what, this, this feels like Thailand. And so here I was thinking, oh, this is like, you know, this, this treasured part of my growing up. And for this, this moment with her, you know, up to her shins and mud, she was thinking, oh, this feels like home too, to me. And so I don't know if she remembers that, that moment, probably not because she did a lot of gardening that year, but, um, for me to have a small hand in helping someone feel like they were at home, that was worth it to me because I had the luxury of returning home. I went to El Salvador for a summer. I got to come home. I went to graduate school for two years and I got to come home. And this woman would probably never be able to go back to where she was born and grew up, but she could have a little bit of home here where I called home. So I think that's, that's one of my favorite little stories. Oh, well, thank you, Nelda. And of course you described it so beautifully. Nelda is also a writer for everyone listening. She may not consider herself one, but I've been privileged to read her writing for a lot of years. And I think that story captures it beautifully. So Nelda, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of these insights. And I know some moms listening are going to go out and start meeting people in their community, investing in them because of what they heard today. So thank you for what you've shared with us. 
So you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me talk about this. Thank you for tuning in today to learn from my dear friend, Nelda. Isn't she the best? I hope that the three takeaways she shared have expanded your understanding of what refugees face when they come to this country and will inform you as you go about helping with any group or organization that you feel passionate about supporting. Those three takeaways were, first, be creative and humble when learning about refugee communities. Second, before assuming you know what kind of help a community member needs, ask them. And remember that often having someone sit down to help them with calls or figuring out paperwork or driving to school or doctor's appointments might be what they need the very most, even more than like a clothing drive. And third, support efforts and organizations that recognize the assets that refugees bring with them instead of focusing only on the needs. Look closely at the messaging as well as the leadership to see if members of the community itself, the refugee community itself, are represented and giving input within the organization. Friends, I appreciate everything you're doing within your homes and neighborhoods to make this world a better place. I want you to know that I'm inspired by you. I'm rooting for you. And I hope you have a great week with your family.